Acts, and that'll be our launching point. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, is the story of the conversion of the eunuch. Very familiar story to all of us. We'll make a quick run through that account and then come back and look at a particular phrase found in that account in Acts the 8th chapter. Beginning at verse 26 through verse 29, we have the case where the part of the story where Philip was sent to the eunuch. And in this text that we're reading beginning at verse 26, that the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and told him to rise and go toward the south along the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert, and he arose and he went and he came in contact with the eunuch. I'm not going to read every verse. Beginning at verse 35, when he came in contact with him, you remember how the, the the Ethiopian treasurer was reading from Isaiah 53, the very text read to us a few moments ago, and he doesn't understand what he's reading. And so Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I accept some men guide me? So he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus, verse 35 says. And so he went and preached Christ unto him. Verse 36, upon hearing that, message about Jesus, when they came to a certain water, the eunuch said, see here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? What hinders me from being baptized? In verse 37, Philip said, well, if you believe, you may. He gave his confession that he believed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, and according to verse 38, the eunuch then was baptized. Now that's a quick run through the story of the conversion of the eunuch. There's much more to it than that. But I want us to go back and focus on verse 36. And that is this question, what hinders me from being baptized? What hinders me? The word translated hinder, Thayer says it just simply means to hinder or to prevent or to forbid. Same word is translated forbid or to withstand in other texts. The word hinder means to cause, to delay, or an interruption, or a difficulty, something that impedes or prevents from doing. A hindrance is something that stands in the way of keeping you from doing something. So what he's asking is, what keeps me, what impedes me, what is standing in the way, what stands between me and doing the thing that I need to be doing, which is be baptized? What hinders me from being baptized? And so it may be that you need to be baptized and there is something that is hindering you. Or in other words, there is something that stands between you and baptism. There is something that stands between you and being baptized. And so let's go back to our text at verse 26 and raise the question, what hinders me? Or the question may be, what hinders you from being baptized? If you're one who understands what you need to do and you understand there is a need in your life, and we'll come to that toward the end of our study, but there's some reason that you're not being baptized when you need to be and you understand that you need to be, and you say you want to be in the future, there's something hindering you. And so the question is, what hinders you from being baptized? What hinders you? Two things we want to notice. Let's start with this. I want to talk about things that people let hinder them from being baptized. This is where someone may learn the gospel. They see what the gospel teaches. They have a general understanding of the revelation of God concerning the scheme of redemption. But when you encourage them, well, why don't you go ahead and obey the gospel now? Why don't you become a Christian? There's something just standing between them and being baptized. What are some things they let hinder them? Well, let's start developing that now. 
The thing that some people that hinder them is that there's some sin that they just don't want to stop. Now, that doesn't apply to everybody, but that certainly applies to some. There's just some sin that they do not want to stop. Well, let's begin with this point. Look in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38. You are familiar and probably can quote the entire verse. That repentance is to precede baptism. In Acts chapter 2, when the question was asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were not just told to be baptized, but to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ, for the remission of sins. So I learned from that that repentance is to precede baptism. Certainly that's the case. Now repentance involves a change of mind that involves a stopping or a cessation of sin. That's what repentance involves. So if there's something that's hindering us, it may be a sin that's involved that I don't want to quit. But let's establish this point. Vine says that the word repent simply means a change of mind that involves both a turning from sin and turning to God. So repentance means there is sin in my life that I'm stopping and I'm ceasing and it's not going to be anymore as best I can in my life. That's the idea of repentance. Let's get some biblical passages that talk about that. In Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 8, we've just begun now our study in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 5 today. Last week we were looking at chapter 3 and John the Baptist was going forth preaching the message that they were to repent and bring forth fruits of repentance. That is, you don't just repent and say you're repenting, but there's some fruit that comes out of that. It means there's a change in your life because of repentance, the cessation of sin. Now let's compare two passages. In Matthew chapter 12, it talks about Jonah going and preaching to Nineveh. But when I go back to the case that Jonah's account in Jonah 3.10, it words it different. Matthew chapter 3 says they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But Jonah's account doesn't use the word repentance. It says that they turned from evil. So here's what I learned from that. I learned that repentance involves turning from evil. We're trying to establish that repentance involves the ceasing or the stopping of sin. That's what's involved. Now when there's no change, there's been no repentance. Let's go to the book of Revelation with, with me, if you will. In the ninth division of the book of Revelation... In verse 20 and 21, notice this principle, when there is no change, there is no repentance. Now notice that verse 20 said, The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship the demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone, etc. Verse 21, And they did not repent of their murders or their sorcerers. They didn't repent. What does it mean they didn't repent? It goes on to tell us they didn't stop what they were doing. So when there is no change, there indeed is no repentance. Now it may be that someone is not ready to quit some sin. In some cases, it might be their drinking or their drugs. In some cases, it might be their fornication or their adultery. For someone else, it might be their lying or their dishonesty. For someone else, it may be the language that they use or maybe a rebellious spirit. And they're ready to be a Christian except for the fact they know there's something in their life. I'm not ready to quit that and I know I'm going to have a struggle and I'm not ready to turn that loose and I'm not ready to quit. And that's what hinders them from being baptized. Here's the second thing. It may be that some are letting this hinder them. They think they just don't know enough. Or they know they need to be baptized. They know they need to be obedient. They know they need to be a Christian. They even recognize they're in danger. But they just think they don't know enough yet to be baptized. Now, 
They think that since there's much to learn about the Bible, they're just not ready to be baptized. They've studied and they've learned some, but as in all cases, the more we study, the more we learn, the more we realize that we don't know. The more you learn, for example, about the book of Matthew we're hearing this morning, the more you realize there's a lot about Matthew I don't yet understand. There's some phrases I need to work on. There's some passages that are yet difficult. And so perhaps that's the case with you with reference to biblical principles. Let's consider these some examples now. That many who were baptized upon hearing one sermon. And we're not going to develop each one of these in detail because we have a number of these to consider. Let's just run through some cases of conversion, starting in Acts chapter 2. Do you realize on the day of Pentecost, those who came to Jerusalem that day had crucified the Son of God thinking they had done the right thing, and they hear one sermon about Jesus being raised from the dead. It's the only one they heard. They heard one sermon about Jesus being raised from the dead, and they understood that, they believed it, and they responded to that that very same day. Let's take another case. Let's take the case of Simon and the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. When the gospel came to Samaria, you remember Simon hearing the gospel upon one sermon, he responded to the gospel. The Samaritans did the very same thing upon hearing one gospel sermon. Let's go to another one. The case of the eunuch, he's riding along in a chariot. He has no clue what Isaiah 53 is about. He doesn't have a smattering of understanding of what Isaiah 53 is talking about. He don't know if he's talking about Isaiah himself or some other man and doesn't even have a clue that it might be about the Messiah. And Philip begins at the same scripture and preaches unto him Jesus one sermon and he was baptized. Let's go again. Let's go to Acts chapter 9 and Acts 22. Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a man who was dead set against Christianity. You would think it'd take 10 lessons to somehow bring him out of that kind of thinking process. He hears a gospel sermon and he responds. Let's go again in Acts chapter 10. The case of Cornelius. This man was, was a Gentile. And he learns the gospel upon hearing one gospel sermon and he responds. Let's go again to Acts chapter 16. There was the case of Lydia. The same thing with the jailer. Same text. Upon hearing one gospel sermon, he was baptized. And let's mention one more. The Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Acts 18 and verse 8. Now you can go back and trace through that in your own time and notice how many sermons. It wasn't a whole series of sermons that they may have heard. But upon hearing one gospel sermon, they obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want to suggest to you, the chances are you may know more than many of them did at the time they obeyed. There's a pretty good chance you have a better understanding of who Jesus is, even a better understanding of Isaiah 53 than the unit did when he obeyed the gospel in Acts chapter 8. So what hinders you from being baptized? You say, well, I don't think I know enough yet. Have you considered the example of those who heard one gospel sermon and they were baptized? Here's something else that people let hinder them from obeying the gospel. They think they can't live up to the standard of Christianity. They think they can't live up to the standard of Christianity. There are those who view the Christian life with perfection. In other words, they equate the Christian life with perfection. And their thought process is that I know that if I obey the gospel, and I know I'm baptized, I know this, I know I will sin again, I know myself, I know my temptations, I know my tendencies, I'm going to sin again, and when I do that, I just know I can't live the Christian life, because the Christian life is a life of perfection. Well, let's establish this principle. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. John tells us the Christian 
the child of God, after they've obeyed the gospel, after they have been baptized, there's going to be times they will sin. Now look at verse 8, he said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now he's writing to those who are Christians, they've already been baptized, and if you say you never commit sin, then you're a liar about that, he said, because you do and you will. There's going to be times that you will sin. Now, here's what's true about that, and that is, that doesn't condone or justify the sin. The text didn't say that at all. Didn't say that because you will sin, if it's okay, so don't just, just don't worry about that, it's going to happen. It just says the fact that it will. Now, you're going to commit sin. But let's go a little bit further. Let's look at two verses that surround that. That's verse 8. Context is always important. So let's go before the verse and then let's go just after the verse. And let's notice that there will be a time that you will need forgiveness. Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. He's writing to Christians now. Yes, they're going to become Christians and they're going to be in need of forgiveness of sin at some point. Now, they may say, oh no, I don't need forgiveness. Oh yeah, verse 8 says you will, you will sin. Let's go to the next verse. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here is a verse that says you will sin, verse 8, and just before and just after, there's going to be a need for forgiveness at times in the life of a Christian. Let's go three, uh, two chapters later, chapter 3. We need to establish there's a difference in sinning and making a practice of sin. So let's harmonize chapter 1 and verse 8. Chapter 1 and verse 8 says, If you say you have no sin, you deceive ourselves, and the truth not in it. In other words, you're going to commit sin. There's going to be times you commit sin. But, but now, let's go to chapter 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in me, he said, whoever abides in him does not sin. But I thought he said we did sin over in chapter 1. He did. Drop down to verse 9. Whoever is born of God does not sin. What does it mean he doesn't sin? It means he doesn't make a practice of sin in his life. Chapter 1, verse 8 says he does sin. This one says he doesn't. We've got to harmonize. It's not a contradiction. He is simply saying there will be times you commit sin, but that doesn't mean you make a practice of sin. You turn from it, as is evident a little bit later in the book. Now, let's establish the fact that you can live the Christian life. What do I mean you can live the Christian life? Well, it means that there are going to be times you sin, but you can live faithful unto God. What I mean by that is this, that if that's not the case, then God's expecting the impossible of you. Revelation 2 said, be faithful unto death. Can you do that? Well, if you can't, then God's told you to do something you can't do. You can be faithful unto death. Philippians 4, 3, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I learned that I can do anything God expects of me. So if God says you can be a Christian, and God demands you to be a Christian, you can be a Christian. You can live the faithful Christian life. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Certainly there were some dangers and temptations with the Colossians. There was a Colossian heresy that was breathing down their neck, threatening them. It hadn't overtaken the church, but it was certainly a danger. And that's why so many commentators talk about the Colossian heresy that, that was threatening this church at Colossae. And yet in spite of all the danger, in spite of all the threats, and the surrounding of temptation, they still could be faithful. Notice chapter 1 and in verse 2. He writes to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. He called them faithful brethren. You can be too. His prayer for them, according to verse 10, is this. That you might walk worthy of Him, fully pleasing Him, 
being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might. He said, that's my prayer for you. I believe you can do that. I believe you can do that. And I believe you are doing that. And you can continue to do that. What I'm establishing is that you can live the Christian life. Here's something else that people let hinder them. Very closely related, but we'll make a little shade of difference here. And that is, there are some who think they have to be perfect in order to become a Christian. Not that just the Christian life is perfect, but that they have to somehow become perfect. In other words, there are people who word it this way. They think they have to become perfect or good, or maybe a better way of wording that, is become worthy to become a Christian. They say, I've got sin in my life, they think, and I've done wrong, and I'm not good enough to be a Christian yet. I, I, I've got to somehow get better and, and become worthy to become a Christian. And if I could become worthy to be a child of God, then, then I'm ready to become a Christian. But in my condition now, I can't, I'm not worthy. And so the reason you need to be a Christian is that you are far from perfect and you are a sinner. You don't need to be a Christian because you're nearly perfect. You need to be a Christian because you're everything but perfect. It's because you are a sinner. Let's establish this principle. In Romans chapter 1, talking about becoming Christians, though that term is not used in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, Romans 1 says the Gentiles are in sin. Chapter 2 shows the Jews are in the same condition. They're all lost. Chapter 3 concludes by saying, we have before concluded that all are under sin, verse 9. That's Jew and Gentile. That includes you. You're under sin. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Let's turn to Matthew, the ninth chapter. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 and in verse 13. And notice what Jesus said in Matthew 9 and verse 13, that I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The invitation of the Lord for you to come and be a Christian was not extended to the righteous, it's extended to the sinner. And so you say, I'm not perfect. That invitation's for you. You say, I don't feel like I measure up. That invitation is for you. For you to become a child of God. Now, you become a sinner at the point of becoming accountable before God. When, when do I become a sinner? We'll talk about this more in just a moment. But let's hit on this principle here in Romans chapter 7 and in verse 9. Perhaps you have, you remember that we've mentioned several times, this is the only passage, at least to my knowledge, that addresses specifically the point of accountability. Doesn't give us an age, just talks about a point of accountability. Paul, speaking of his own life, said, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What's he talking about? Well, let's establish, first of all, what, what law he's talking about. He's talking about the law of Moses. And you say, how do you know? How do you know? Look at verse 4, context. Context is always important. We become dead to the law through the body of Christ. It has to be the law of Moses, doesn't it? You say, well, I'm not sure. Well, then let's get verse 7. I had not known covetousness except the law had said thou shalt not covet. I do think that's Old Testament law, isn't it? Isn't that the Ten Commandments? So he's talking about Old Testament law, and he said, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, in what sense does the commandment come? Was Paul living before the Ten Commandments were given? Not, not hardly. So there was a sense in which the commandment came into his life. Not that it was not already given, but it was not binding upon him because he's not old enough to understand, to obey or disobey. He's not accountable to the law. So what was his condition then in his life when he was young? He said, I was alive once without the law. My relationship to God was one of life. I was living as if there was no law. If there's no law, there's no sin. But when the commandment came, 
What do you mean commandment come? I'm now old enough to understand and obey and disobey the law. That's when sin revived and that's when I died. That's when I now have a problem before God. You become accountable, or that is you become a sinner at the point of accountability. When you finally reach the point you know right from wrong and you understand the law and you can either obey or disobey, that's when you become a sinner. And that's when there's a problem in your life. Now then, let's go further. Baptism is for the remission of sin. So you don't need to be baptized because you married and you're good enough to be baptized. You need to be baptized because you are a sinner. In Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. That was the very people who put Jesus on the cross and cried, crucify him. Saul of Tarsus was told in Acts 22.16, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. That was the very one who held the coach for those who stoned Stephen, made havoc of the church. Baptism is for the remission of sins. Some of the 3,000 we've already mentioned in Acts chapter 2 were murderers. They had crucified the Son of God. They were the very ones who had crucified the Son of God. They certainly didn't measure up. There were those who were the Corinthians. Some of them were homosexuals. When the gospel went to Corinth, some of those who heard the word and obeyed, some of them had been homosexuals and fornicators and adulterers and idolaters. They certainly didn't measure up and feel worthy in order to be baptized. They were baptized because of their sin, not in spite of their sin. Now, if one could become perfect or right before baptism, there's no need for baptism. You say, well, you know, I can kind of grow and I think I can get better in my life and I can, I can do that before I'm baptized. You don't need to be baptized. There would be no need for it at all. If you're waiting until you're good enough, you never will be baptized. Here's something else that's hindering some people. Some people are hindered from obeying the gospel because they don't understand what they need to do. They really don't understand what it is that they need to do. What do we mean by that? Well, they may know the conditions, but they may not understand what each of them means. Perhaps we've learned from the youngest of age in class that we can run through and say, okay, faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. And we can run that through and we've got it memorized. You could do that at three years old. That doesn't mean you have a comprehension of what all that means. I taught a three-year-old one time the Greek alphabet. He didn't have a clue whether it was Greek or Hebrew or anything else, but he, understood, he could rattle off all the entire alphabet, the Greek. So just because I know something doesn't mean I understand that something, whatever that may be. Now, it may be that people don't understand what repentance involves. They know you need to repent in order to be baptized, but what is repentance? Quite often when a, when a child is real young and the parents say, would you talk to them and see if they are ready to be baptized? One of the questions they get stumped on is explaining repentance. What repentance means? What does it re involve? What is repentance? Repentance involves a change of mind that results in a change of life. That's quite simplistic, but that's what it means. It means an about face. It means you're regretful and sorrowful for the sin of the past and you're making a change of your mind that results in a change of action. That's why we started with the point some people are not ready to give up this, this sin in their life. Maybe it's bad language or maybe it's, it's a family religion or whatever it may be. There's something in their life they're not ready to turn loose of. They're just not ready to turn loose of that yet. They haven't completely changed their mind. It may be that some don't understand what confession involves. Sometimes you ask someone, well, well tell me what to, you have to do to be saved. Well, you have to hear, you have to believe, you have to repent, you have to conf confess your sins. No, the Bible talks about confession of sins, but that's not what this is about. 
Let's know what this is about. Let's turn to Romans 10, 9 and 10. What is this acknowledgement? Let's go there and, and the text is going to tell us. Let's notice what's being confessed. In becoming a Christian, becoming a child of God, what's being confessed, the word confess means to acknowledge. Let's, just, let's talk about what the word confess means. It just means to acknowledge. If a man confesses to a crime, it said he confessed. A man was arrested today and he confessed to the, to the murder. What does it mean? He acknowledged that he did it. Well, you can confess to a number of things. It might be a sin. It might be a crime. It might be that you have something or you own something. You confess, you acknowledge that. It means to acknowledge. This is an acknowledgement of one's faith. Let's see if that in Romans 10, beginning at verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, what are you confessing? The Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Verse 10. For the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What is he, what is he acknowledging? He's confessing or acknowledging his faith in the Lord Jesus. I'll give you an example of that in Acts 8. The very place where we began. When Philip said, if you believe, you may. He simply then made the confession or the acknowledgement, I believe, Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want to suggest to you there's a difference in understanding something and knowing where all the verses are. Someone said, I, don't, I just don't understand. It may be they don't understand repentance. But there's a difference in understanding what repentance is and being able to cite where all the verses are. Well, I don't know where all the verses are that deal with that. That don't mean you don't understand it. There's a difference in understanding something and being able to explain in great detail. There's probably few, including myself, that could explain in the greatest of detail every aspect of repentance and every passage on repentance. That don't mean we don't understand what repentance is. Can you cite every passage on baptism? You don't mean you don't understand baptism. There is a big, big difference. The eunuch understood enough to obey when he heard the message one time. He hears this message beginning in Isaiah. He hears about Jesus. He learns he needs to be baptized. Do you think he understood everything about baptism that could ever be understood? Do you think he could exegete Isaiah 53? Do you think maybe he could sit down and write a commentary now on Isaiah? Or even that chapter? No, but he understands it. He knows enough that he might respond to the gospel. Here's something else. Sometimes people are waiting for a better time when it's easier. Now, they want to be a Christian, but they're waiting for a better time when it's easier. You see, they may think that it's easier to do it a later time. You see, another day may not be so hard. When I reach another phase in my life, it may not be as challenging as it is at this aspect in my life. There's some challenges I'm facing. Maybe I'd like to wait when temptations are not as strong as they are at the present. I'm giving in to the temptations now, but if I just kind of wait a little bit, those temptations get better, I can handle those better, and I'm going to wait when things are much better. I want to suggest to you there's no better time than now, and here's why. Because yesterday has passed. Yesterday would have been a good day to obey the gospel, any of the yesterdays. But you can't do that now because they're all gone. Tomorrow... Is uncertain. Those who were told that, uh, who were saying, well, we're going to go into the city and continue there for a year. Buy and sell and get gain. Your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while and then advances away. You have no promise. Tomorrow would be a good day to obey the gospel, but we're not sure if it's going to be a Monday or a Tuesday. And so the only time we have now 
or is, is now. And that's all we have for sure. The passage cited here, Hebrews 3, says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. That's the only day you have that you know for sure that you could respond and become a Christian. In fact, Hebrews 3 in verse 7 and later in verse 9, another time, it may not be easier, it may even be harder. So I think I'm going to wait until it gets a little easier. I think it'll be easier a year from now, maybe three months from now. Another week, another month, another year. I'm going to obey the gospel. You know what? It could be harder to obey the gospel. You say, how do you know? Hebrews 3 says, quoting from Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. If I don't respond today when I know and my heart's being pricked, the chances could be increased that my heart becomes harder and harder and harder so that I never respond to the gospel. It may be harder in the future rather than being easier. Here's another thing standing in the way. Some people let this hinder them, the hypocrisy of others. Well, I want to be a Christian, but you see the hypocrisy of others. That really, really, really bothers me. See, they're discouraged from being a Christian because some are hypocrites. Romans 2 says it does affect some. You remember how the Gentiles blasphemed the name of God because of you? Writing to the Jews. That is, the Gentiles look at the Jews and think, if that's the people of God, I don't have anything to do with that. So it does have an effect upon others. But what that does is assume everybody's a hypocrite. There are some hypocrites around, so everybody's a hypocrite. I want to suggest to you not all are hypocrites. There are some people that are liars in the church. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira were liars. But everybody wasn't a liar. Not everybody. Not everybody died in Acts 5. There were some liars there, but not everybody were liars. At Corinth, there was a fornicator. Sometimes there are fornicators in the church, but not everybody's a fornicator. And you say, how do you know? Well, he was the only one in the church there that was condemned for it. He was the only one they withdrew from for that sin. So not everybody's a fornicator. There are some, but not everybody's a fornicator. That doesn't excuse you from your responsibility to be obedient to the gospel. Does the fact that some believers are hypocrites mean I don't have to believe? Forget about baptism. Forget about being in the church. There are those who are believers in Christ, believers in God, that are absolutely hypocrites. That mean I don't have to believe. When I get to the day of judgment, I'm going to tell God I don't even believe in you anymore because they're hypocrites in, in the, among the believers. Now, that exempt you from your responsibility to believe. John 8, verse 24. How's that going to work at the judgment? When we all stand to give an account before the judgment bar of God, every man appear before the judgment seat of Christ and say, well, you know, I, I meant to obey the gospel and I never did. But you know, I got to looking around and I found two or three people that were hypocrites. There's my ticket. I'm, I'm ready to come on into heaven because, you see, they're hypocrites in the church. How's that going to work? You're not going to be judged, Romans 2, 6 says, by the actions of others, but by your own actions. Yes, there may be hypocrites. You may be obedient to the gospel, and you may come in, and you sit down and worship side by side with a hypocrite right beside you. They may be a liar. They may be a thief. They may be a fornicator. But you've obeyed the gospel, and you'll give an account for yourself. Here's something else I want us to consider. Some are waiting until no one is urging them. Quite often you talk to someone where several people have been telling them, you know, I'd like to see you obey the gospel. I think it's about time for you. I'd like to encourage you. I, whatever way I can help you. And sometimes their response is this, that, that I appreciate people's interest, but I'm telling you, I'm going to wait till it's my decision. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait till it's my own decision, and I'm determined to change, but it's going to be when no one's suggesting that to me. 
That's what I'm going to wait on. I, I, I don't want to do it when somebody's encouraging me. And so every time someone's encouraging them, they're determined they're going to wait even further. If they ever make a move, it's going to be on their own. That's the idea. There are those who seem to confuse encouragement with freedom of choice. Establish the difference. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. Therefore knowing, the terror of, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul said. When we look around and we see the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to avoid the terror of the Lord. So what I learned from that is we are to persuade others. We're to go around in persuading others to do what's right, to make a change in their life, to be obedient to the gospel, to make correction in their life. We're to do that. We're to persuade others. And yet, obedience is a personal choice, as in the case of Acts chapter 2. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. It's a personal responsibility. Don't confuse personal responsibility and freedom of choice with someone's encouragement. Someone encouraging you is not trying to make you do something you don't want to do. They're just encouraging you to do that. You know there will always be people who are encouraging you? There's going to always be someone who's encouraging you to obey the gospel. There's going to be people who care about you. And they would like to see you become a Christian. There's always going to be someone that's interested in your soul. And if you're waiting when no one is encouraging you, you never will find that time. And therefore, you never will obey the gospel. Now, let's spend the rest of our time talking about when the time is right. In other words, when there is nothing hindering you. What is the circumstance when nothing is hindering you? What, what is the circumstance in your life when you can say, you know what? When I ask the question, what's hindering me? I find out there's nothing hindering me. And I'm ready this very morning to respond to the invitation of the gospel. What's that circumstance? Well, here's it, here it is. When I see a need in my life, when you see a need in your life, when you look at your own circumstance and you see, you know what? There is a need in my life. The need is the fact that there is sin in your life. Remember, baptism is for the remission of sins. If there's no sin in your life, you don't need to be baptized. We've already established sin enters your life at the point of being accountable. Sin is what separates us from God, Isaiah 59. Your sins have separated you and your God. Here's the problem. Let's go back to Romans 7, 9 just for a moment. Back to that accountability passage. I was alive once without the law. That is, my condition before God, before I became accountable, was one of life. I didn't have to worry about anything. I wasn't separated from God. But when the commandment came, sin revived. Now notice what he said, and I died. He was separated from God. Now there is a serious condition in my life. He was a wretched man, verse 24. Same context. There's sin in your life. You see, when you see there's a need, you recognize I'm lost now and I will be for eternity. And I recognize that those who are in sin can't go to heaven. Jesus said that if you die in your sin, John 8, verse 21, where I go, you cannot come. Can't go to heaven. That means you will spend eternity in hell. The wages of sin is death. That's eternal death, Romans 6 and in verse 23. And so when I recognize there's a need in my life, then I'm ready to be baptized. There's nothing hindering me. Is there sin in your life? Are you old enough to sin? Are you old enough to violate the law of God? Have you looked around and you think, you know what, I know there's sin in my life. I, I know I know there's sin, and I know I need to do something about that. Then there may not be anything hindering you from being baptized. Here's the second thing. What is the circumstance under which you say, there's not anything hindering me anymore? And that's when you know you understand about Jesus. What do you mean you understand about Jesus? You understand who he is. 
Don't just talk about understanding Jesus. We're not talking about you could write a book about Jesus. Or that you can explain everything there is to explain about the virgin birth or the resurrection. But do you understand the revelation about Jesus that indeed he was born of a virgin and what that implies? We just studied that in Matthew chapter 1, fulfillment of Isaiah the prophet. That means he was something special. That means that he was not just an ordinary person. In fact, he was the only one ever born from a virgin. In fact, he lived a sinless life. Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 15, he never committed sin. Do you understand what it means that he, indeed he is the Son of God? He's declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. That is, means he's equal with God. He's deity. He's God himself. Do you know what it means that he died for your sins? He died because of your sin. He paid the price for your sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Do you know what it means that he was raised from the dead? Do you understand about Jesus? You say, yeah, I know he was born of a virgin, and I believe that, and I know he was sinless, and I know he's the Son of God, and I know he died, and I know he's raised from the dead. And that's the ultimate proof that indeed he is who he claimed to be. There may be nothing hindering you from being baptized, even this very morning. But what is the circumstance under which I can say there's nothing hindering me anymore? When I see a need in my life, when I understand about Jesus, Thirdly, may I suggest when you understand the conditions. Now, when I say you understand the conditions, again, that doesn't mean you could write an entire book on each one of these. Or that you could get before an audience and you can explain them in great detail and cite every passage that ever could be cited. But you understand them well enough that you could obey them. For example, like what? Well, like believing in Christ. Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. You know what that means? You see, I understand that. Well, what about this? Do you understand this? What repentance means? Repenting of your past sins. And you say, well, yeah, I understand. That means turning from sin, being sorrowful for sin, change of mind resulting in a change of life. What about the confession that you believe? We've already explained that meaning an acknowledgement of your faith like the eunuch did in Acts 8. You say, yeah, I understand that. I, I, I got that. Well, what about this? Do you, do you understand what it means to be baptized, immersed in water for the remission of sins? Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You say, yeah, I understand all of that. Well, do you believe? You say, yeah, I believe. Hey, have you had that change of heart, that change of mind repentance? You say, yeah, I've got that change of heart. Then, then can you just simply make the confession you believe to be Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then submit to be baptized? Then maybe there's nothing hindering you. Maybe there's nothing hindering you. So what are the circumstances under which we could say, you know what, I think I'm ready to be baptized when you perceive that there is danger. If you think there's no danger in putting off your obedience, you say, I know I need to be baptized, I know I need to be a Christian, but there's no danger. I don't see any danger in that. You may not be ready then. There may be something hindering you yet. But when you perceive there's danger, what do you mean there's danger? When I recognize, you know what, Christ could return at any time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's focus there. We're going to look at Matthew 24 tonight. 1 Thessalonians 5, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians says something about the second coming. This text tells us in chapter 5 that he's, the day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night, unexpected and unannounced. In other words, there's no warning that today, tomorrow that he's coming, or in three months he's coming, unexpected and suddenly the Lord is returning. And I don't know when that'll be. And you don't know when that'll be. The danger is the Lord could return before you take another opportunity to obey the gospel. 
What other danger is there? Well, it could be that I could die. Pointed to the man wants to die after that to the judgment. We have no promise of it tomorrow. You're not guaranteed you'll make it home. There is no guarantee that you'll live another day, another hour, another minute. And when you get to the point you perceive there's danger, you know what? The Lord could return. I, I know that. And I also know that I could die and there's danger in my putting this off. Then maybe there's nothing hindering me from being baptized. What is the circumstance under which I could say all hindrances are gone? I think I'm ready this morning to be baptized. It's when you come to the point that you say, you know what, I'm, I, I, I believe. I am a believer in the Lord. When I believe. You see, baptism is for believers. Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized. That's what baptism is for. Remember in Acts 8? What hinders me from being baptized? Verse 36, if you believe, you may. Because baptism is for believers. If you say, I'm not a believer, then no, there, there's something hindering you. There's an obstacle there. You're not ready to be baptized. But you say, I am a believer. I believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you believe He was real? That he was raised from the dead, indeed he is who he claimed to be, that he is the Son of God, he's dead. And you say, yeah, I believe that. Then maybe there's not an obstacle. Maybe there's not a hindrance, and you may be ready to be baptized. But what is the circumstance under which you can say, all hindrances are gone, I'm ready this morning, I'm going to respond, I'm going to be obedient to the gospel. It's when you repent of your sins. Because you see, baptism is for those who repent, Acts 2.38. If someone says, you know what, I'm not repenting of my sin, but I want to be baptized... I, for one, refuse to baptize them. You can if you want to, but I'm going to refuse. And I've done that. And there's others in the audience that have done the same thing. Where someone would be living in sin and say, I'm not going to change that, but I want to be baptized. I'm not going to baptize them. Because baptism is for those who repent, Acts 2.38. Have you repented? What is repentance? I remind you again, it's prompted by godly sorrow. It involves a change of mind that results in a change of life. Shall we continue in sin? That's the whole point of Romans 6. And his answer is certainly not God forbid. Have you repented? Are you sorry for the sins that you've committed in the past? Have you changed your mind with reference to your past sin? And are you ready to make a change and a commitment in your life? Have you done that? You say, yeah, I've done that. I've, I've done that. Well, then maybe there's nothing hindering you. The question is, what hinders me from being baptized? That's what the, the eunuch asked. There's a world of things that we could test, a partial list of which we have given, of people letting things hinder them, and they're not ready to respond because of. But all the hindrances are gone. Is when you understand who the Lord is and what you need to do, and how you need to respond and you're ready because you have made that decision. You see the danger. And if all hindrances are gone, there's no better time than this morning to respond to the invitation. Do you believe Jesus to be the Son of God? And you say you do. Have you repented of your sins? You say you, you have. When we stand in just a moment, would you make your way to the front and have a seat and we'll assist you in making the confession and we'll ask you a simple question. And that question is, do you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? And you say yes. Upon that confession, you'll be baptized into Christ for the remission of sin. There's nothing hindering you. Would you respond?
Respond even this morning while together we stand and while we sing.